0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zola. Africa, amika na una.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu. With me in studio are Anne Moussa, Tabisa Lohoko and Tami Uza. In our top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Kenyan opposition parties push for a national referendum, the Soutu nationals want their homeland to become part of South Africa, and auditing of Afghan presidential run votes continue. In economics, IMF wants fiscal policy to address energy's environmental impact, and in sports news, Nigerian Football Federation postpones elections. But first up, the news with Anne Musa.
2: Good morning. The Central African Republic's Seleka rebels will not take part in a national unity government as they were not consulted about the choice of the new Prime Minister. Seleka says it might also rethink last month's ceasefire deal. Interim President Catherine Samba Panza named Muhammad Kamon on Sunday as the country's first Muslim Prime Minister. Kamon is tasked with forming a consensus government and guiding the Central African Republic to elections next year. The United Nations has appointed three experts to an international commission of inquiry that will investigate possible human rights violations and war crimes committed by both sides during Israel's military offensive in the Gaza Strip. Canadian uh, Professor of International Law William Shabazz will head the panel, whose other members are Dow. Daoudo Dian from Senegal, and Amal Alamuddin, a British-Lebanese lawyer, engaged to be married to actor George Clooney. A month of war marked by Israeli airstrikes on and rockets fired by Hamas militants into Israel has killed almost 2,000 Palestinians and 67 Israelis. The panel is due to report to the UN Human Rights Council by March next year. Meanwhile, former South African President Tabumbeki has encouraged South Africans to boycott Israeli goods in response to the country's actions in Gaza. Over 1,800 people have died in Gaza since the start of the Hamas-Israeli war more than three weeks ago. Mbeki was addressing first-year students of the Tabumbeki African Leadership Institute in Pretoria.
3: The people of South Africa must indeed engage this matter. For instance, there have been the the call for boycotting Israeli goods, divesting from Israeli companies, that kind of thing. And I think that call is correct. And it's not responsibility of government to mobilize people we must mobilize ourselves. We need the political parties, we need the trade unions, we need religious bodies, and so on, really to mobilize so that, uh, indeed, Israel does pay a price for the positions that it is taking. So, indeed, I think that let us, indeed, all of us go out and mobilize for a boycott of Israeli goods and so on, but I don't think we should boycott ambassadors.
2: United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has welcomed what he has described as the forward movement toward government formation in Iraq. This following reports that Iraqi President Fouad Masum asked Deputy Speaker of Parliament Haider al-Abadi to form a new government. Iraq has been embroiled in a political crisis as the incumbent Prime Minister insists on seeking a third term. The country is also facing an insurgency by the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, which has forced thousands of people, mainly from minority communities, to flee their homes. UN spokesperson in New York, Stefan Dujurik.
4: The Secretary General welcomes the forward movement towards government formation in Iraq. He also commends Iraqi President Fuad Massoum for having charged Dr. Haider al-Abadi in accordance with the Iraqi Constitution with the formation of a new government. He encourages Dr. al-Abadi, Prime Minister-designate, to form a broad-based government, acceptable to all components of Iraqi society in accordance with the constitutional time frame. The Secretary General is concerned that heightened political tensions, coupled with the current security threat of Islamic State, could lead the country into an even deeper crisis.
2: The World Health Organization has raised the Ebola death toll to 1,013 as the virus spreads through the West African countries, Liberia has the highest reported number of casualties with 29 deaths, followed by Sierra Leone with 17 and Guinea with 6. Menon, U.S. authorities have approved a request from Liberia's government to send sample doses of the experimental ZMAP drug to treat Liberian doctors infected with Ebola. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa zoona Africa Amuka, na unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. It is exactly 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Tuesday, August 12th, the 224th day of the year 2014, with exactly 141 days left in the year. Now, our top story, political referendum proposals have dominated Kenyan politics political scenes in the last few weeks, and the leader of the opposition, Rayla Odinga, has begun collecting more than one million signatures that are constitutionally required to initiate the process. But President Uhuru Kenyatta has dismissed the call for a national referendum in Kenya, claiming the government has no resources to fund the process. Mwaiki Konyo reports from Nairobi.
5: The call for a national referendum in Kenya has raised political temperatures all over the country as leading opposition politicians are crisscrossing the country preparing the public for the national vote. The opposition coalition coordinated by the former prime minister Raila Odinga has established a national referendum committee to work out modalities for the exercise and ensure that as many Kenyans participate in the process. The team has been tasked to collect at least 1 million signatures Needed to officially initiate the public petition for the referendum among critical issues raised by the opposition that require urgent attention from the Kenyatta administration includes a state of insecurity in the country, the rising cost of living, corruption, and tribalism in public appointments. It's Senator born Hawale of the opposition of Ford Kenya Party convene an all-inclusive national referendum committee NRC. For the purpose of preparing the people of Kenya for a national referendum on the critical challenges facing our nation. Demand
6: the immediate end to corruption, wasteful spending, reckless borrowing within and by the Jubilee government.
5: For the last few months, the former Prime Minister Raida Odinga and the entire opposition in Kenya have tried in vain to convene a national dialogue with the government and other stakeholders in order to resolve the wide range of issues affecting the country president Uhuru and his jubilee coalition government have dismissed the push for the national referendum and other opposition demands claiming the process was a waste of public money and time but rai raudinga and his political supporters have vowed to continue with the process.
7: It's about referendum. We are meeting on Wednesday to start the journey for referendum. And I'm appealing to uh, uh, court family members, court family, and uh, members of court, or that's ODM, uh, WIPA, and VOD uh, Kenya, to start uh, appending the signatures uh, for the referendum. Now we have started the, the mood of referendum and uh, putting up our signatures for the referendum.
5: After collecting the one million signatures from the electorate, the process will be handed over to the Electoral Commission.
8: After the signatures are, are, are done, it is taken to the IBC
9: to, to for framing of the questions and everything, I think. After the mil- one million signatures is, is, is done, then the IEPC will send it to the county.
5: While the referendum is a constitutional right in Kenya, the framers of the current constitution anticipated to be an option of the last resort. Constitution lawyers in Nairobi are divided on the issue. Some feel that such a way to vote must not be trivialized or reduced to a political tool to beat opponents for political gains. The chairman of the Constitutional Implementation Committee, Mr. Nyachai. All you
10: will do when you do that is to increase the confusion
5: and to to, to increase the, the, the antagonism between the two houses of parliament. But others feel that the president has constitutional obligation to facilitate the process within a given time frame. A Nairobi lawyer, Kibe Mungai. The fact is that the president, so long as uh, during his term as president, must carry out that duty. He has a constitutional obligation to protect the constitutions, which includes to ensure the proper usage of public funds. For him to say that uh, a specific referendum, will actually be carried out at the same time as a general elections, or such future dates as will not disrupt the economic and political life of a country. And as the referendum fever looms in the country, opposition leaders are holding consultation with the representative of the civil society, religious leaders and other stakeholders in order to form an all-inclusive national referendum committee for the national vote. Reporting for Channel Africa. Maiquei com o
1: A group of Basutu nationals forming part of the 400,000 working in South Africa want the mountain kingdom to be part of South Africa. The group calling themselves Basutu residents met at Tembalani shaft of Anglo-American platinum mine in South Africa's northwest province. They say South Africa can lead them to democracy and freedom. This as they allegedly felt victimized by officials demanding permits and passports when crossing the border. Borders into South Africa. Thousands cross the 14 border posts in South Africa on a daily basis to seek a living. Dale Khaitziwe has more.
9: These are Lesotho nationals applying for their jobs in South Africa for many decades now and feel disgruntled that the kingdom is failing them. Lesotho is one of the landlocked countries in South Africa. There are several subgroups of Basotho, including Batung, Batwening and Baputing. It has a population of over 2 million and it consists of 10 districts with two official languages, Sesotho and English. A group calling themselves Basotho residents converged at Tembelani Shaft of Amplest in Rastenberg, calling on Lesotho to be dissolved and become part of South Africa. Dr. Letzema Morolong is the leader of this group and also a minor. The, 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 the country of Lesotho has got a problem with us. Because uh, when, we, when we go to them and complain about this, uh, these things which are happening to us, telling us many things which, they, which we don't understand about them. We want the South to be a province of South Africa. The group say they are unable to work freely and are being harassed in South Africa. They want free movement at the border post, permits and passport to be dismantled. They had this to say.
6: As we baso, This is the time whereby South Africa must take control and it help us. At least let Lesotho become a province of South Africa. We are all blacks and we are all from the motherland country.
9: Although Lesotho residents group cited their frustrations, both South Africa and Lesotho are enjoying bilateral relations. The call came a week after an intervention by South African president Jacob Zuma into the problems facing the administration. Currently, the Lesotho Parliament has been suspended for nine months as political parties are calling for the Prime Minister Thomas Tabani to be outstead. Political analyst Tom Wheeler is a former diplomat and now an independent commentator on international affairs, says this move will be dramatic and will not be easy.
8: To make a move like this would be
11: really a very dramatic one for a country to give up its sovereignty and it would not be easily done. And of course, a lot of consultation would have to take place from from the king of Lesotho through the politicians and so on. So disgruntled workers are not going to ha- cause this to happen just uh, easily.
9: The measure of two countries has been dismissed by Lesotho government. Government spokesperson in Maseru, Tabo Tatolequata, elaborates.
4: The, the, the dream
8: of a measure between Lesotho and South Africa is very far, far-fetched because Lesotho is a sovereign, independent state recognized by the United Nations, recognized by the AU. Uh, so the dream of a measure is, is very remote. What they should rather do is to table their grievances before their proper authorities. And proper authorities are the government of Lesotho through its relevant ministries, which will take up those issues and discuss with the South African government.
9: And in the report is Lesotho governmental spokesperson, Tabo Tata Likwata Amdal in Rastenberg.
1: Now, today we ask you, do you think it's a good idea for Lesotho to become a part of South Africa? Email us your views, your feelings. To info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to 2782 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Now, do you think the Basutu Nation should become a part of South Africa as a province of South Africa? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. <music> It is 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the President of the Central African Republic has named a Muslim as the country's new Prime Minister as part of efforts to create a more inclusive government after more than a year of sectarian violence. Mahamat Kamoun, previously a Special Advisor to President Catherine Samba-Panza, a Christian, will lead a transitional government after being nominated by presidential decree. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Andre rue senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa.
11: Well, it's very important in any peace process that you do need to have reconciliation appearing to happen, apart from actually happening on the ground. Perception management is very important. Now, Mr. Kumun was also the Director General of the Treasury under former President Francois Basile. So, he does have influence on both sides. He is a Muslim, he'll have better contact into the Muslim community, and the armed groups that are from the Muslim environment, specifically Seleka, will have more confidence in a Muslim representing their interests on the highest level than a Christian, for instance. So he has got contact and influence in the old government environment under the Caesar, and as a Muslim now is more accessible and will be seen as an option to be able to broker the peace process that is now ongoing. It's very important that you have to start at the top with reconciliation. The challenge that we have, though, is that the conflict, the violence is happening on grassroots level. And national conciliation is not going to affect that. You're going to need other interventions, and you're going to need concessions being given for atrocities and war crimes to get the people to lay down their arms and come to the table. So it's a case of getting everybody into a process where they have confidence in the outcome and there is something in it for them. And he represents the starting point for that. So I think it's a very astute move.
6: But now, won't this appointment aggravate the anti-Balaka Christians and provoke more violence? Personally, I
11: don't think so, because he was accepted by the mainstream community under Francois de Caesar as Director General of Treasury, which is a very senior and important post. So there is confidence in him and in his reputation. He's not a firebrand. He did not preach sectarian violence. There's a compromise move, but the fact is that he hasn't been involved in one side or the other in terms of stoking the violence. So I think it, it will not have an impact in, in terms of actual furthering the conflict, but it will open doors and bring confidence because peace processes are only as strong as the confidence that the people have in those processes, whether they take the next step forward to an eventual disarming which is a major, major step because, remember, the Seleka forces have broken up into criminal gangs and and now it is on grassroots level with banditry, local criminal elements and the the local community opposition in terms of the anti-Balaka. So when you have an organization that's in control and you have structured security forces that you can work with, then it's much easier. But right now, you have to develop confidence. You cannot command. You can only try and pull people in through showing good faith and through actions and demonstrated practical, concrete activities on the ground. So I do not think he is going to be divisive. I think he will be a great asset to trying to bring a very, very difficult ceasefire process um, into effect.
6: What sort of powers exactly does a prime minister have in the Central African Republic? Or does that not matter so much? What really matters is what he will be able to do to try and bring about peace in that country.
11: Well, in the Central African Republic, the prime minister is basically more a protocol post to administer government. The president is the boss, so the prime minister serves at the pleasure of the president, so he is a presidential appointment, and therefore he has to implement the direction of the president, and it's not you know, on a similar power level. He was a special advisor to the president. That relationship has now been formalized into a higher-profile role, Obviously, he would only have been appointed going from an advisor to actual prime minister if he has actually made concrete impact in the peace process and has generated confidence in his ability to take this process forward. So although he does not have that much power in terms of his actual official position, he has a lot of power in terms of determining an end state that will bring peace to this, this country that's been so wrecked by violence.
1: Andre Roux, Senior Researcher, Conflict Management and Peace Building Division at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, speaking to Joseho Tingake.
0: We teach what we know, but produce what we
10: are. So says the saying. How do you teach your children? Join me, Tika on Channel Africa this coming Thursday at 9:25 Central African Time. When I come with another episode of Our Heritage, talking about one of the national symbols in the country, the national no anthem. heritage. What are your symbols, and how do you observe them? Tune in to Channel Africa. On the frequency 9625 kilohertz in the 90 meter band to Southern Africa and online at www.channelafrica.com. Our heritage at 925 Central African time on Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance. Africa, rise and shine.
0: Africa, Zolta. Africa, Amuka na
1: As the auditing of the votes from the June 14th runoff presidential election continues in Afghanistan, more than 5,000 ballot boxes have been opened. The auditing process is part of the effort to resolve a dispute created by the objections to the announcement of the preliminary results by the Independent Electoral Commission, IEC, in July. Experts from the UN Development Programme, UNDP, are helping in the audit of the vote. Nicholas Haysom, the Deputy Special Representative of the UN Secretary General in Afghanistan, spoke to UN Radio's Tilak Pokarel about the auditing process.
4: Well, you know, the election process contemplated that there would be elections. Then there would be a count of all the votes by the IEC, and the IEC would then release a preliminary temporary result and that would then serve as a basis for people to complain to the elections complaints body. Now, the IEC has released a temporary result, but because there was a widespread objection on the basis of alleged fraud, and one of the candidates withdrew from the process, a political intervention took place in which the parties and the IEC agreed to a process in terms of which there would be a 100% audit of all the votes that had taken place, And effectively, the reissuing of a temporary preliminary result. So at this stage, all the ballot boxes have been called in from all over the country. And for the past three weeks, there's been a process of counting the votes in every ballot box. At this stage, they've reached the number of about 5,000, over 5,000 boxes. So IEC teams are opening up each box in the presence of observers from each of the two candidates' teams and in the presence of domestic observers and international observers. Where there is a dispute, a UNDP advisor is ruling on the dispute, and all of the features in the box, any anomalies, any broken seals, any votes which should be invalidated, are being recorded on a sheet of paper. That process will now continue until they've audited all 23,000.
9: What remains to be done?
4: Well, first of all, we have to complete the remaining 18,000 boxes which have to be opened up and inspected in the presence of these international observers and candidate agents. Then the IEC needs to rule on which votes are being invalidated as a result of this close inspection and interrogation of every ballot box. When that is done, we will have a preliminary result which then leads to any adjudication by the ECC. And then once they've adjudicated, they pass their results back to the IEC, who makes the final result in determination.
12: What's happening on the political side? In
4: a sense, quite independently, the two candidates are engaged in political discussions as to how to promote national unity in the country, regardless of who wins. And that has involved some discussion about how both sides would accommodate each other in any new government, regardless of who the winner is.
12: Talking about UN's role, what is the UN doing? Well, I
4: think its broader political role has been to act as a coordinator of international support, reaction, and assistance to this process. And at the same time, very direct, continues with its very direct role of providing assistance to the IEC to complete this exercise and to coordinate assistance to the complaints body so that it too can do its part. Some of that requires providing expertise and advice and continuing instruction on international best practice in regard to the many problems which we're encountering. At the end of the day of course only the bodies legally authorized to perform a role, the two election bodies, can perform the legal roles ascribed to them but it has been done in close collaboration and with the advice and support of the
12: UN. What kind of support are you getting from all the stakeholders?
4: Well, we're getting a lot of support from the stakeholders. Of course, this is a very conflictual and competitive process, so there are disputes between the stakeholders at every point, and because the UN has been asked to play a role as something of a tiebreaker, something guide in this process we were unable to say, no, we don't want to perform this role. Afghans wanted us to assist them, and so we have accepted it. Inevitably, that lifts our profile, and it puts us into an awkward position where we're having to adjudicate in concrete decisions between the claims of one side and the claims of the other. So inevitably, we will draw criticism from both sides. To the extent that we have drawn some social criticisms, and you can see it in the tweets, I think we've more or less got the balance right that both sides... Both appreciate our role, but both sides have criticisms as well. We, for our part, have had to engage on a massive exercise to increase the numbers of staff here, particularly at this huge exercise taking place. And we've had to call upon UNDP staff and electoral staff and even our UNAMA staff some of whom have come from different stations all over the world. And we've been using also observers from other countries who are willing to be rehatted as UNDP advisors, and we've been putting them on what we call the floor, which is the four warehouses where all of these inspections, interrogations and disputes are taking place.
1: And that was Nicholas Hasem, the Deputy Special Representative of the UN Secretary General in Afghanistan. Speaking to UN Radio's Tilak pokarel It is 8.28 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now going back in time, today in 1978, Pope Paul VI, who had died on the 6th of August at the age of 80, was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. That was today in 1978. <music> Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
2: In the headlines, Mozambique's feuding political parties reach a peace deal that could end nearly two years of hostilities. The Central African Republic's Seleka rebels will not take part in a national unity government as they were not consulted about the appointment of the new Prime Minister. And U.S. authorities approve a request from Liberia's government to send sample doses of the experimental ZMAP drug to treat Liberian doctors infected with Ebola. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you and the former South African President Thabo Mbeki has encouraged South Africans to boycott Israeli goods in response to that country's actions in Gaza. Almost 2,000 people, including 300 children, have died in Gaza since the start of the Hamas-Israel war last month. On the Israeli side, 64 soldiers and three civilians have died. Some civil organisations and political parties in South Africa have called on government to kick out. About the Israeli diplomat and to recall Pretoria's ambassador to Tel Aviv. Addressing first year students of the Tabo mbeki African Leadership Institute at the University of South Africa in Pretoria, President Mbeki said South Africans should punish Israel by boycotting its businesses and goods. Ndemomukobo has more
12: it is customary that every year former President Taboombeki interacts with the first year students of the Taboombeki African Leadership Institute. The students asked back on a number of issues on local politics, ranging from when South Africa is ready for a woman president, Pretoria's participation in breaks to Africa's integration and conflict resolution, as well as the war in the Middle East and the continent's benefit from the recently concluded U.S.-Africa Leaders' Summit. Currently the Palestinian death toll in Gaza stands at more than 1,800, with almost 10,000 people wounded since the start of the Hamas-Israeli war more than three weeks ago. And these numbers are said to increase with both sides in the conflict refusing to back down. Former President Tabumbeki didn't mince words on the killings in Gaza. He said as a form of punishment. South Africans should mobilize support for a boycott of Israeli goods for its actions in Gaza.
3: The people of South Africa must indeed engage this matter. For instance, there have been the call for boycotting Israeli goods, divesting from the Israeli companies. And I think that call is correct. And it's not responsibility of government to mobilize people who must mobilize ourselves. We need the political parties, we need the trade unions, we need religious bodies to mobilize so that indeed Israel does pay a price for the positions that it is taking. So indeed I think that let us indeed all of us go out and mobilize for a boycott of Israeli goods and so on. But I don't think we should boycott ambassadors.
12: With an intensifying call for Pretoria to kick out the Israeli ambassador and to recall its diplomat in Tel Aviv, Mbeki said this is not advisable.
3: What the Palestinian are say to the South African government is that the South African government needs indeed to be actively involved in trying to find a solution to this matter. And therefore, one of the things that the South African government must do is to engage the Israeli government. You can't do that engagement by withdrawing ambassadors, you need those ambassadors to be part of your machinery to engage. We might be very happy with the withdrawal of the South African embassy from Tel Aviv and kicking out the Israeli ambassador here and applaud for one day. And then what happens after that? I think the Palestinians are correct.
12: On South Africa's participation in BRICS. the former president said the country has to work with like-minded countries in order to have a voice that cannot be ignored in global politics.
3: One of the things that was happening was that the voice of the non-aligned movement was getting weaker and weaker. And we thought then that uh, perhaps to correct this, let us take some of the more powerful members of the non-aligned movement and form them into some kind of collective so that you then have a grouping whose voice could not be ignored. You can see this gross imbalance in power in the world. For instance, uh, you saw what happened with regard to Libya, that virtually the Americans, the British and the French, just took a decision that Qaddafi must die, and I'm saying I hope that BRICS can make a contribution in that context. And clearly some of the steps that they've taken, like forming this development bank, that's not step in the right direction.
12: Mbeki also said Africa is part of the global community, insisting that the continent has to work with other powerful countries like China and the U.S., although he welcomed U.S. President Barack Obama's initiative to have a meeting with the continent's over 50 presidents. Mbeki would have preferred a well-coordinated gathering of Africa's five regional leaders. It would
3: be better if the continent was represented by something like five of the presidents chosen on the basis of the regions, and let that be our delegation. That that would be the best way to proceed. I certainly think that it would be much more dignified if we did it like that. And I'm quite sure that those five African presidents would be very competent in terms of representing the interests of the continent
12: President Becky will travel to Sudan this week to go and facilitate talks between South Sudanese President Salva Kiir and the leader of the opposition Rick Machar. I am Tebu Mokoba in Pretoria.
1: An email by South African Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa in which he tells mine bosses to keep the pressure on the mine ministers of police and mineral resources has been raised at the Marikana Commission of Inquiry in Centurion. In the email to Lonmin bosses a day before the Marikana tragedy, Ramaphosa said he had spoken to then mineral resources minister Susan Shabangu and that she agreed that what was going on at Marikana was a a criminal act. Meanwhile, the commission was briefly brought to a standstill when protesters heckled Ramaphosa. The group banged on tables and clapped their hands, shouting that Ramaphosa
6: must resign. Spuem reports. On August the 15th, 2012, 10 people, including two policemen, were killed in an email he exchanged with London management Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa says he did not have anything in mind except that police needed to do their job.
8: What did you mean
3: by the minister acting in a more pointed way?
10: I meant that what we wanted to communicate to government that we're dealing with people who are being killed and what we need to do is to prevent further deaths occurring. And acting in a pointed way would mean that those who are perpetrating those acts should be arrested so that that comes to a stop and does not carry on any further. That is acting in a pointed way.
6: He denies having influenced former police minister Natim Tetwa on what steps to take during the mine workers' strike. His legal representative, advocate David Unterhalter, asked him about an email Ramaphosa received from the marketing director of London on the 12th of August that year. In the email, Ramaphosa was asked to use his influence to bring the consent to the attention of the necessary officials, but Ramaphosa says he only informed Mteitwa of the concerns.
10: In my call to him, just raised the concern that Jemison had raised, that people had died and are dying, and the situation was getting worse. And Jemison had requested that there should be more police presence so as to prevent further loss of life. And I said, Minister, the situation that I've been told about on the ground is such that they need help. They need more police presence on the ground. Uh, could he do something about it?
6: The Deputy President says the killing of the two security guards was alarming. He was also asked about an email conversation with a representative from Shanduka at Lonmin, Tandeka Nube. Nube had sent an email to Ramaphosa, informing him about two deaths during the strike. Aunt Holter asked him why, in his response to Nube Ramaphosa considered the situation as grave.
3: So if we then examine the email that you sent back to her, which appears at the top of this page, you thank her for the email and you say, uh, this is a grave situation. Why did you consider the situation was grave?
10: I considered it grave because in her Communication to me, she had already indicated that two people had been injured or shot at. So to me, that raised the concern that an element of violence was beginning to creep into this action.
6: Lawyers for the Legal Resources Center say Ramaphosa's proposal that the only way out of the unprotected strike was to negotiate should have been raised earlier with Lonmin's management. Advocate Tembe Kangnugaitobi says because of his influence, Ramaposa could have raised the issue in his email correspondence with management on August the 15th.
8: If you had raised prominently the solution that you proposed in the email, whether you don't think that perhaps if you had taken a more active,
13: direct route towards cajoling all the parties to a negotiated outcome, whether some of this could not have been avoided, what do you think about that proposal? It is, it is possible.
10: Yes, eminently possible, but we were dealing with a situation from a variety
6: of angles. Bodyguards rushed into the auditorium and police officers stood at the entrance when a group of protesters called for Ramaphosa's resignation. They shouted, leading to a brief adjournment of the commission. I'm
7: saying, please the I'm reason... Sure. I'm sure it will be, but please, Yes, please. the reason that I'm, I'm raising oh, this oh, now... Yeah.
3: blood on his hands.
7: Yeah. yeah. Uh, please leave the room.
14: Will you please leave the room immediately? Blood on his hands!
7: Blood on his hands! Blood on his hands! The Blood on his hands! Blood on his hands! Blood on his hands! The proposal
6: must resign! Later in the day, lawyers representing families of some of the Lonmin mine victims said Lonmin management had an agenda to get the police or army to break the unprotected strike in 2012 by use of force. The commission resumes this morning. I'm Spuem Kize in Centurion. It's 8.40 Central
1: African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to the year two th- sorry, 1998 Rather on this day when President Nelson Mandela's testimony in South African Rugby Football Union affairs was set aside. In providing reasons for the decision, Justice William de Villiers said the evidence of President Nelson Mandela was unsatisfactory. Because he refused to answer certain questions, answered back and used the court for political rhetoric. Former SAFM's PM Live anchor Tim Mudise takes us down memory lane.
5: The judgment came in the form of a 1,168-page document and includes criticism of President Nelson Mandela's performance in the witness box. De Villiers says Mandela attempted to intimidate the cross-examiner and made defamatory remarks of and concerning the then-Safu president Louis Leite. Well, we are joined now by Pax Mankathlana, spokesman for the president. Mr. Mankathlana, what are your overall impressions of uh, Judge De Villiers' reasons for his judgment?
8: The judge, first of all, has the right to make an observation about a witness, that is, in, the, in his court. Uh, secondly, That observation is an impression that the judge himself is making of the witness. It does not necessarily mean that uh, his conclusions are correct. Uh, That is why there will always be differing opinions on the attitude and uh, views of this particular judge.
5: Let's look at how the president feels about uh, his integrity being questioned in this manner. Once you enter the witness box, you
8: become a witness. You stop being a president. Uh, The reason the president decided to appear was that he wanted to show that he was not above the law. And uh, it is the appropriate thing to do when you deal with a matter like this is to forget that you're dealing with the head of state. But then in any case, judges are, you know, do not emerge from space. Uh, Judges are human beings like you and I. They make observations and use language that reflects their attitude to life and the way they look at things. But these are only observations that have no bearing on the substance of, of this case. We are appealing against the facts and not what the judge thinks of the president.
1: And that was Pax Mankasane, then spokesperson to former South African President Nelson Mandela, speaking there to PM Live's former anchor Tim Mudise on this day in 1998.
0: Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zohrza Africa, Africa Amuka Na
1: Approximately 20% of the world's young people experience a mental health condition each year according to a new United Nations publication. The UN estimates that there are 1.8 billion adolescents and youth making up a quarter of the world's population. This year's International Youth Day is focusing on mental health to, in the words of the U.N. Secretary-General, help lift the veil that keeps young people locked in a chamber of isolation and silence. Basma Bachal sat down with Ahmed Alendawi, the Secretary-General's envoy on youth, to discuss the importance of mental health for young people around the world.
7: This issue is one of particular importance because it affects youth from uh, all over the world. Youth are at a great risk of a range of mental health conditions while transitioning from childhood to adulthood. Globally, it's estimated that approximately 20% of youth experience a mental health condition each year. And as you know, one of the social issues arising from having a mental health condition is the stigma and discrimination that often comes with it. This creates considerable barrier to the inclusion of young people both socially and economically. We must work together to address all these barriers. So considering the importance of this very important issue, the issue of youth and mental health, and knowing that this large generation of young people, 20% of them, they suffer mental health conditions, we thought it's extremely important for the United Nations to dedicate this day, the International Youth Day, to help young people to speak out about their experiences and to fight the stigma associated on youth and mental health.
1: When we talk about mental health,
7: what does it mean? We talk about all issues ranging around the mental health conditions of young people. We talk about the stigma associated for young people who are suffering from mental health conditions. You know, in many cases, they are under tremendous pressure to the point that they could not talk about it freely. And we think, I mean, it's important to address this stigma. And that's why this is the key message that we are carrying from the International Youth Day, that considering all the situations that young people are passing through in conflict zones and the transition from childhood to adulthood and all the traumas and all circumstances that could lead to some mental health conditions, it's important to highlight the issue of youth and mental health and to allow young people also to speak about it and for the society to listen and to accept.
6: Is
1: there any specific advice to the society how to deal with this issue?
7: In fact, I mean, we believe it's important to emphasize the significance of more defined policies and programs designed to address the issue of youth and mental health. This includes improving access to services as well as working to eliminate the stigma and discrimination associated with youth and mental health issues. The society plays a significant role in getting young people to accept them first and also to ensure that they are joining forces with young people who are suffering from mental health conditions and fighting the stigma. That's a responsibility of the society to speak about these issues and to help young people to fully integrate in the society.
1: That was Ahmed al the UN Secretary General's envoy on youth, talking to UN Radio's Basma Bakhwal. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next was Tabiso Luhoko.
14: South Africa's Mineral Resources Department has denied it has threatened to suspend the licenses of mining companies. The department has been sending out letters to mining companies after inspections. Mining company Goldfields says it's been threatened with the closure because of lack of compliance with social and labour plans. Benchmarks Foundation spokesperson, John Caper, says companies not implementing labour and social plans are a common occurrence.
7: The social and labour plan might deal with roads that lead to the mine not necessary that are helping the community They might lead to the building of a clinic to test mine workers lungs capacity but it will be promoted as if this is a, a clinic for the whole community but it won't be located nearby where the community is they don't develop anything of substance back to these communities so the communities are worse off than they were before mining came along
14: The Chartered Institute of Purchasing and Supply in Zambia has established the Global Standard for Procurement and Supply which sets out skills and abilities required for each of the five levels of procurement competency. It provides a comprehensive competency framework to enhance individual and organizational procurement performance. The Institute says the standard offers consistency in behavior and improves the knowledge of the excellence in supply chain practice. It further says the standard is a point of reference for organizations and individuals to measure their own performance levels in the field of procurement and supply. And it's an objective framework that could offer a wealth of benefits. African Bank founding chair Sam Motswinyana says he is saddened by the crisis the micro lender finds itself in. He adds he's also encouraged by efforts to salvage it african bank was registered in 1975. in 1999 african bank was sold to teta group which merged it with king finance unity financial services and alternate finance Mutunyan says the bank's crisis has been triggered by financial hardship experienced by borrowers
8: it is largely also due to the uh, economic climate around us uh, the The constant, you know, uh, loss of jobs by people who have been given money by the bank is also affecting the bank. Loss of jobs because uh, of the strikes that are also prevalent in our country. I think we've got to look at all those conditions that uh, cause the instability in the banking system.
14: Financial indicators, the sour, the US dollar trades at 1065 South African rands, 876 Sibbutzonapulas, 612 Zambian kwachas, 059 British pound, 074 to the euro, gold 1305 dollars, platinum 1461 dollars an ounce, brand crude 104 50 cents a barrel. Economic update.
1: Thank you, Tabi. So now, Tamikuza. Yeah. The Proteas' performance-wise?
13: They are leading Zimbabwe by 113 runs. Lemem- remember, they are the top-ranked side. Mm. Uh, Zimbabwe is having an, hap- an uphill battle mm. against South Africa. So we're just hoping day four, how is it going to pan out?
1: Okay, we're looking forward to it. Give us an update.
13: Thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer. The Nigerian Football Federation, the NFF, is thinking of postponing the date of its scheduled election into various positions in the Executive Committee of the body. The much-anticipated poll will be held on the 26th of this month, and it will be in abuja but that date may not be realistic given the prevailing political intrigues that are surrounding the impeachment of its president amiru maigari by eight members of the executive committee last month and the subsequent split within the wider football fraternity togo wants the confederation of african football (CAF) to move a game out of ebola affected guinea as the outbreak of the deadly disease threatened to badly disrupt the Africa Cups' final qualifying round the Toka Football Federation's request to refer to its first game of the final group stage in Guinea in the first week of September. The Toka Federation says that its players and officials fear travelling to Guinea where the Ebola outbreak started and where hundreds of people have died. Ebola has killed nearly 1,000 people in West Africa after spreading from Guinea to Liberia, Sierra Leone and Nigeria. There are also doubts over qualifiers involving Sierra Leone, which has stopped all football in its country and wants to play its home games in other countries. Now back home in local football, Keza chief striker Kingston Carter believes that the Perfene Glamour boys are up for a tough task when they take on Black Aces at the Mbombela Stadium tonight. The two sides last clashed in the M108 quarter final two weeks ago when Chiefs enjoyed a 4-0 triumph. The Zimbabwean international who scored in that game stressed that it will be difficult playing against Amazon side once again in a short space of time. Now in cricket, South Africa made 357 in its first innings and led Zimbabwe by 113 at the end of the third day of the one-off test at the Harare Sports Club yesterday. The Zimbabweans were 28-for-1 in their second innings after posting 256 in the first and were facing an expected uphill battle against the top-ranked team. South Africa's 141-run first innings lead was built on scores of 98 by Faf 2 and 81 from Quinton de Cork. And now in rugby, South African Springbok team Dr. Craig Roberts yesterday declared a clean bill of health for the team ahead of their Castle Laga Rugby Championship opener that will be played against Argentina at Loftus in Pretoria on Saturday. Roberts also gave details of the nature of Victor Medfield's knee injury, which will keep the lock out of action for this weekend's clash.
12: Yeah, we, we had some big heavy sessions last week. It was a week that we could really put in some hard work and the guys really worked hard last week. Uh, the, the one issue that we had was other, obviously Victor who tweaked, uh, tweaked his knee. He's got a little tear in the cartilage in his knee. Uh, he had scans last week, saw orthopedic specialist, uh, and he's responded, he responded well to rest and rehab at the moment. We were a little bit concerned that he might have to have a scope on it to clean that little bit of cartilage out. Uh, it doesn't look like that's the case.
13: And on golf world number one Rory McIlroy says that he has set his eyes at the forthcoming Masters. He was speaking to reporters after his sensational PGA US victory on Sunday.
2: I'm looking forward to you know it's it's a it's the only one that I haven't won, you know and you know I desperately want to try and win that green jacket. I'm not going to try too hard, but I know that if I play my game and and, and play the golf that I'm capable of, then there's there's no reason why I shouldn't go to Augusta thinking that i can win a green jacket and, and complete the career grand slam so um you know there's still eight months to go and there's a lot of golf uh, in between now and then but uh obviously you know that's the the next you know big thing on the radar
13: and finally, South Africa's top tennis player Kevin Anderson has climbed four places back into top 20, equaling his career-high 17th position in the latest ATP World Rankings Tour singles rankings. Anderson made it to the quarterfinals of the ATP Masters in Toronto last week, where Bulgarian 7th seed Grigory Domitrov defeated him 5-7, 7-5 and 7-6. The South African previously achieved a ranking of 17 in July. After reaching the fourth round, of the Wimbledon. That's the end of our sport, and back to Lulu Cabo.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zosa. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: Capping our top stories in Africa, Razan and Shan at the Sawa, Kenyan opposition parties push for a national referendum. Lesotho nationals want their homeland to become part of South Africa and auditing of Afghan presidential runner votes continue. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Olive Ngoma with a song titled Feli.